We are live. Okay. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Police Off the Cuff After Hours. My name is Mark DeMeo. I'm your host. I'm here with my co-host, my partner in all things law enforcement. What's up, Bill Cannon? I'm so excited. These guests are coming from different parts of the country. Shanahan's in North Carolina. He got off the one train there. He's fucking lost, you know? <laughs> and Jackson in the bowels of Brooklyn. That's right. Oh, Brooklyn. Hello, everybody. Hello. All right. So without further ado, let's introduce our guest. We are honored to have them both. One's a repeat customer. Uh, we'll introduce him first. He's a retired uh, detective. Um, he's one of the crea uh, creators of uh, crisis intervention tactics, as well as many other uh, law enforcement training tactics. He's, uh, he's an actor, he's a martial artist, and he's a gentleman, and uh, I'm proud to uh, call him my friend. What's up, James Shanahan? What's up? How are you? Wonderful. Thank you for having me back. God, it's an I'm honor to have you, man. I'm very, very excited. So I know so is Bill. And our guest tonight making his first appearance, right, Lieutenant? Is yes, on this show. Yes, indeed. Okay. He's making our first okay. appearance with us. He's he's famous, actually. He's the He was the commanding officer of the hostage negotiation team. Uh, they started a, a training program called Talk to Me. Um, he's also uh, he retired now, and he's a TV and film consultant, and uh, he's better known as Gentleman Jack. Wow. Gentleman Jack Cambria, what's up, Lieutenant? How are you? Thank you. Hello to both of you, and uh, so thrilled to be here. And uh, I am fans of all of you. I got to tell you, James. I'll get into James in a little bit, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, all of you, uh, Bill, I know many years. I did uh, Bill's other show, correct, Bill? That's right, Real uh, real did. Crime Stories. It was great. Yeah, that yeah. was wonderful. And and Mark, I've always been a fan of yours. Mark used to come, I got to tell you. So Mark used to come uh, when he was ever, whenever he was in headquarters, he'd come up to my office on the 13th floor just to say hello. Knock on the door, hey, Lou, how you doing? And then he'd like go into uh, his routine. And I'd be like on the floor laughing. I was, and comic relief. It was comic relief on my very hectic days, which are most most of the time. And Mark, I don't know if you remember, you, you told me a, a story one time. It was a joke, actually. And you say, Lou, how can you tell uh, if there's a uh, plainclothes cops driving around in your, in your precinct? <laughs> so, I don't know. Mark, how do you tell? You remember the joke, Mark? Uh, if you see a, a, a black guy, a white guy, a Spanish guy, and a lesbian driving around in a minivan... <laughs> That was it. That was it. And I still remember that. So uh, yeah, fantastic. That's excellent. But thank you all. Thank you all for coming. Oh, it's, it's an honor to have you here. Yeah, yeah. And James, of course. James, uh, you know, do we have to invite you to say something or what? Because usually, no, yeah. usually I'm, what, we I'm, need the duct tape. I got, I got three of my boyhood heroes right in front of me. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay? Listen to me. The three of you are the reason why I didn't leave with the 20 and out crowd, okay? <laughs> stuck around for a little while, so. Well, James, tell our audience who you are and what you do and what your goals in life are. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's say it's Thursday, so it's uh, it's lime jello night here. At the okay? yeah, I'm in my bathrobe. <laughs> uh, what do you <laughs> what time is lights out? Oh, 2100. 
Did they, what did they, they walk around like a half hour with the pills? No, you got to see the candy stripers in this place. It's <laughs> they got the little paper cups with the pills. Go get them, or the nurse brings them to you. Room service, Dad. Hey, James, is the electronic monitor uh, uncomfortable to wear? <laughs> like anything else. Uh-oh. Like where this night's going, yeah, indeed. Like wearing an ankle holster, okay? <laughs> you got to be careful because they say that most of the, what do they call them, the STDs now, they happen in uh, in those uh, retirement homes over there. Okay, well, hey, man. Just be careful. Whammo. Whammo. <laughs> you know, James, James lives in the Pearl River of North Carolina. He lives in Cary. It's like Coptown, USA. No, let me ask you something. You were, you were a New Yorker your whole life, right? Brooklyn and Manhattan, born and raised. What's it like? What's it like now living in um in Carolina? Well, let me put it to you this way: down here, Cary is is an acronym for uh, containment area for relocated Yankees. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anybody, How long did you work on that joke? <laughs> anybody is from North That's Carolina. Good one. My block, you might as well call it Yankee Stadium. Okay, so I'm I'm I'm, I'm among Plenty of New York. There's more New York food down here than in New York. And down here, we're not boarded up. So come on down and uh, have at it. Well, congratulations. Congratulations that you made it down there. And Jack, you're in in Brooklyn? Yeah, Bensonhurst. Yo, Brooklyn. You got a a townhouse or something? No, so what I uh, do have... um, I mean, a brown house, a a brownstone. Brownstone, brownstone. Brownstone, yeah. No, I do not. No, no. I have a house in Brooklyn... uh, and the wise guys. Uh huh. It's a it's a totally safe neighborhood as a result. Yeah, they call uh-huh. it, they call it Fort Hairspray, right? Yeah, you know, yes. <laughs> and along those lines, uh, Bill, compliments to you the other night on your show with Tommy Dades. I saw that. What a great and, guy, huh? Uh, I'm a big fan of Tommy Dades. Yeah, no, me too. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, Tommy Dades once saved me from a civilian complaint. Believe it or not. So Tom, so when I was a, sorry, it's a great story. Oh yeah, I was telling Bill earlier. When I was a sergeant in truck six, which is housed in emergency service, of course, I'm talking about, which is housed at the 6A precinct, and we recovered 13 precincts in the Brooklyn South area. Uh, Tommy Days was a squad detective in the 6A squad right next door. So they would always call us uh, and they were doing, always executing warrants. And this was around the time of uh, the Ralph Dole's killing, which Tommy spoke about the other day. So um, before. I, they had, there was a big investigation before they trying to identify who might have done it, but there was never any conviction on it, sadly, as my recollection anyway. So um, we were doing warrants around all the wise guy joints in that area, in the social clubs. And this one particular night, they reached out to us. They had, they had a warrant uh, to do a social club of uh, one of the people he spoke about, uh, Billy Three Fingers Cthulhu. I think they called him Three Fingers because he was missing two fingers. And we go into the club. It was in, uh, it was like Dyker Heights, 66th Street, I think it was, or 64th maybe, and, and like 11th Avenue, as I recall. So we go in there, uh, we, they're supposed to all have firearms and all that. So we go in, you know, guns are, not, you know, guns are showing, demonstrating. We had the helmets on, the, the battering rams, the ballistic vest. And we go in, and there's about maybe a dozen people inside the club. So we, uh, you know, please don't move, get down to the ground now. So everybody complied and got it down to the ground, except... Billy Vitolo, he's the, he's the captain there, you know, so he's not going to be getting down on his knees or, 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 or cops, you know. 
So I was closest to him, so I wanted to physically grab him and, and throw him down to the ground. You know, everybody gets handcuffed up. Uh, uh, later on, I find out there was a uh, twenty-six thousand dollars on the on the table. They were playing cards. Twenty-six thousand dollars on the table. So after you know the squad and uh, everybody, they cuff everybody up. They take them all down to the station house. What we do, uh, go out to the truck, the big rescue truck that we used. Uh, we got out the ten foot ladder. And we got the flyers wanted for information, $10,000 reward or whatever the money was, for information on the shooting or the killing of police officer Ralph Dolls. And we get the ladder, we climb to the top and put it right on the ceiling, we tape it all over the ceiling, about three or four of them, you know, and, uh, and we leave. You know? So now the next time they came back, they didn't have no 10 foot ladder. So they had to really hustle to get that those posters down, right? <laughs> but when we get back to our quarters, I have to go down next door to the squad. I have to get some information from my paperwork that I have to do. And I go up to the squad, and you know, Tommy's there and everybody. And Billy Toll now, he sees me. And he goes, I want this guy's name. I, I want his shield number. Because he was going to make to make a civilian complaint out of me. So Tommy gets up out of his desk. He goes, no, no, that's, that's not happening. <laughs> uh, okay. So I got my information and I went off, you know. But uh, yeah, I was a big fan of Tommy's. Uh, he was what he did and uh, and uh, his investigations with the mafia cops and all that. It was amazing. I was a shout out to him if he's watching. Hello, Tommy. <laughs> Shanahan, can you beat that story? Oh. <laughs> I stayed out of Bensonhurst, okay? <laughs> my limits, like I said. Look at that. Look at yeah. look at you two there. Was that, that was that your wedding day? That's, yeah, that's when I was still a fan of carbohydrates, obviously. <laughs> that was the uh, Jimmy, wasn't that the uh, the uh, Citizens Academy graduation? We were oh, absolutely. We both instructed at the Citizens, Citizens Police yeah. Academy, one of the best things the police department ever invented because we yeah. took people steamed up radicalized by the time we got done with them. Where's an application? How do I start? Yeah. yeah. We converted them. So you guys for, look, it's been a year since COVID and you guys were working together, going all over the country, teaching your uh, dog and pony show, right? You want to tell our fans what you guys teach? I, I, what do I do? I, 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 I worked with Lieutenant Jack Cambria, and and it was I, I overnight I uh, a, a class that I was teaching for years, and all of a sudden it, it it worked its way into I worked my way into the hostage negotiation team, and if you want to talk about a pinnacle of success, and Jack, forever I owe it to you. That's it. When I retired, I started an LLC. <clears throat> And uh, I call it Kesatsu Dojo, of course, uh, common spelling. <laughs> KesatsuDojo.com. And uh, I, I brought, uh, brought in Jack and a few other people I call headliners and uh, conflict management. And uh, we created a curriculum and took a lot of the stuff that we did with great success in the PD. And uh, we put the... We put the the genie in our bottle. We put a label. Like, you know something? I think if you guys go back on tour, you should have Mark and I as like the you know the the, uh, the warm up act. <laughs> well, obviously, Bill, I need a tech man because I don't know. <laughs> I don't know a modem from a scrotum. Maybe some, uh, you know. Yeah, let me ask you a question. Any oh, chance? Yeah. 
any chance that they're doing all this uh, police reform and, and they want to get uh, the clinicians out and all this other stuff and that they're going to hire you, conflict management, to teach civilians how to go in there and de-escalate situations so they don't need the police? Wouldn't that be ironic? <laughs> Wouldn't that be ironic? I'm I'm still waiting. I'm waiting for the phone to ring. Okay, yeah. I'm just saying. Wouldn't it be ironic? Yeah, it would go full circle for sure. Considering yeah. the last thing that Jack and I did for the job, we were part of a of a training team that created the crisis intervention team training among with others. That was basically our last duty station, and that was the essentially it was the it was EDP workshop that a lot of a lot of us know John Jay College working behind the door and the HNT class it was the ESU class and uh, uh, I was responsible with others of kind of bringing that that down to ground level with recruits and in service personnel and newly minted supervisors even executives because that was the formula so to answer your question hey we know how to teach cops how to deal with people. And if they want to bring in these civilians, uh, uh, violence interrupters, de-escalation, I'll tell you, I don't touch two things. That's, uh, what is it, the uh, implicit bias? I, I don't know anything about that. And uh, critical race theory, well, if there was- You could, you could very well be hired to get a call from one of these companies. And they said, we're going to be sending clinicians out and we're going to be send, sending uh, social workers out. Yeah. And, um, you know, we want to teach them how to de-escalate situations. So we want want them to, you to train them. I'm in a room surrounded by books and lesson plans and notes and films. I'm available. I'm and we're going to pay you <laughs> $10,000 a class. More like the six-foot hero and a couple of peppers. Shanahan, we're going to send you a seven-figure check, and you just decide how much to send back. <laughs> I'll call Larry David and tell him keep the job. I'm not working for you. You know, along those lines, uh, uh, all, uh, about uh, about three years ago, some of you may remember, I know James does, uh, there was, we had a deputy chief on the, on the job named James Shane. And James Shea is the brother of Dermot Shea, of current police commissioner. And uh, James Shea is now the director of public safety for New Jersey City Police Department. So about three years ago, he calls me up. Um, during, during when we were both working together, Deputy Chief Shea comes up to me and says, Hey, Jack, I would love to get into your hostage negotiation class. I always wanted to be a negotiator. I was never afforded the opportunity. What do you think? A one-star chief asking a lieutenant, you know? Uh-huh. I know my politics. I said, Chief, I would love to have you. So he comes into the class. It's a two-week class. Uh, there every single day. He didn't have to leave every once in a while on the phone, but then he'd go after, after, after the class. He'd go to his office, and he would you know, do his work, whatever he had to do. And he brought him to the principles of negotiation, that sometimes uh, you know, a tactical assault is not your first option, when it doesn't have to be. Sometimes there's no negotiation to be had. Active shooter, for example. Uh, no negotiations here. But when, when time does allow for that, uh, and the philosophy that James and I always use is just because you have to stick doesn't mean you have to use it. But then again, you might have to. And ultimately, law enforcement is about the use of force. So he calls me up and he says, Jack, I've been having some problems with my, uh, my 911 call takers. Um, they're burnt out, they're underpaid, they're underappreciated. And they, when people are calling in for emergencies in Jersey City, says where he is, they're getting attitude from these 
call takers. And as a result, they're amassing a great synopsis of uh, civilian complaints. Because can you come in there and do a little program for them about uh, de-escalation of emotions and all that? So, <laughs> well, yeah, I can do that. So, I mean, I have the, the, the basic foundation already. But what I have to do is uh, just do delve into a lot of research about dispatches going bad. And I got research from across the country where dispatches were hanging up on people and, you know, people were dying as a result of that, you know, arguing with people on the phone. So I got all these as examples and I did the program. He had about 60, I think 60 uh, different uh, dispatches at the time. And I did that over three different sessions and we got nice reviews. Fast forward now to uh, this past June of 2020, uh, he calls me up again and he says, Jack, listen, the mayor of Jersey City, uh, he's looking to be proactive in getting out 1,000 person police department in Jersey City, some de-escalation training. Same thing, pretty much what you did for the dispatchers. I told him what you did for us back then with the dispatchers. They told me to call you. Hmm. So, ah, okay. So I started getting involved with that and uh, I actually got about 500 of them, of them done, 30 at a time. And uh, then uh, COVID, they had an uptick of COVID in the Jersey City Police Department, so they canceled all training at that point. So I might get started up again at one point. But I got to tell you, I work for, uh, in addition to doing work with James, I also work for some private companies. I do stuff on my own as well. And um, there's a big now kind of check the box type of training, right, James, for this type of training. What um, it is. Yeah. You know, to avoid having these cops step on what I like to call those legal liability landmines where they step on them, blow themselves up in the process, blow up their agencies. So I draw from my, from my 34 years of experience of what I've seen over the years in the different ranks where officers got themselves in trouble when it wasn't necessary, where there was an alternative approach, but they, they relied on their emotional impulsivity, if you will, and they just, without thinking. So that's what this is pretty much all about, trying to keep cops out of trouble is what it is. Did you guys see that video of the cops going into the um, domestic violence situation? And uh, it was almost like a closed job. And then the guy opened up shooting at them. Yes. Yes. I mean, that could have been social workers, you know, instead it was cops. And what will happen if, and God forbid, that is the answer? It's going to happen if they go to – well, in Harlem, they're switching to social workers. You know, if, if you know your history and you know we do – there was years and years and years ago, it was then EMS, New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation. They would go on EDP jobs. They were being assaulted. That was the advent of having the police right in tandem with them, maybe right. in the late 50s, early 60s. So as far back as you want to go, they, they needed and required a police escort. And now there's this dream, this idea that we don't need the police. Instead, we need this this uh, approach and if you look at the average cop as jack and i have seen and you have seen we have cops on this job that have more heart more soul more of an intuitive ability to deal with people but the focus now is on that fringe out there of cops who we should never have hired right now jack obviously works from his lifetime in emergency service and my baseline was my years with the housing police, first of all, and housing police PBA, where I actually had held the hand of cops who might have done the job right, but because they said something, got themselves jammed up. And those right. words you can't pull back. 
How many times I cops got civilian complaints? They're locking up drug dealers. But the civilian complaint, the substance was, did you have to call me an asshole in front of my nine-year-old <laughs> What was the substance? It wasn't about you locked me up. I was out there slinging rock. And you right, right. That's business. But the idea was he had a resentment to the fact that this cop used this, this Latin, this natural language. So the work was to really bring down the, the rhetoric and just focus on the technique and the spirit of good police work. The problem with what Jack and I teach and others teach, because we didn't invent this. This wasn't something that, that we in, uh, invented or, uh, over the weekend to navigate our midlife crisis. This is the stuff you, that- You shouldn't keep saying that, that you didn't invent it. We could edit that out if you want. I would, I would uh, say we invented this. We did this, Jim. We did this. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, what I invented, what I invented was my ability to, to, to look at what great cops did and turn it into a curriculum that would get buy-in from cops that naturally are, are training averse. They don't like going to training because they don't like being lectured to. Instead, the what I was able to do, and I'll take credit for that, that I was able to go into a classroom of cops who would probably rather get their teeth drilled out of their head than go to training. And they left saying thank you because all I did was just create an environment that looked similar to what training looked like an hour or two after training when cops retired back to the bar, started slapping back the Amstales and started sharing tradecraft with each other. That's where you learn. And right. it was dead. I used to say, where, where, you know, where were you three hours ago? All right. I'm not saying anything in the classroom. I said, <laughs> what are you planning on doing with this stuff? I mean, I worked with cops that had more police experience under their fingernails than I'll ever have. The best thing about my job is all I did was kick off the conversation. I used the class I teach to teach the class that I teach because I found cops were extraordinary representatives of good, solid police work. And all I had to do was put it together. Yeah, there was a little bit of showmanship, a lot of theater about getting cops to get that we're not here to judge you. We're not here to hurt you. We're not here to cripple you. We're here to share what we know so we can all walk out of here with a with a message of hope. James, one of our uh, fans in the live chat, Duty Ron, says, um, I remember James Shanahan from PSA 3. I think he had the nickname Shanavan. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> I was not. PSA 3. No, I was uh, I was a Manhattan housing cop. You were five and six, maybe, right? Yeah, Manhattan, basically Manhattan North. Uh, okay. Was a, there was a Tommy Shanahan in the housing police department. We always used to get mixed up. With oh, okay. Was he a heavier drinker than you? He was uh, heavier <laughs> man. That was, that was the guy who used to come in and buy a few rounds, though. You never did that. I do. <laughs> I brought my way out of trouble. <laughs> I knew oil and you know, James, getting to what some of the things you were talking about, there was a favorite expression in street crime and in anti-crime when you toss someone that you to leave the guy with a good taste in his mouth. Okay. If you jumped him, tossed him, he didn't have a gun, you said, buddy, I'm sorry, man, you fit the description of someone I was looking for, or I thought you might have had a gun, and you, you talk your way out of it. Or, but, you know, some cops would be like, eh, you don't like it, you know, they curse the guy out. That's not the way to do it. The more experience I saw, I used to teach a class for the cops that got high CCRBs. Nobody else would touch this class. Why? 
because you're talking to number one, you're talking to street cops who do police work for a living. These aren't guys who, you know, make a living putting chlorine in the swimming pool at the police academy. Okay. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> These are guys that are doing police work and they're getting civilian complaints. And I would think that that for all of the, the hoopla that these guys were getting 50 and 60 complaints. Some guys were coming in three, five complaints in a year. That's pretty good numbers. Yeah. And I would, it was almost like a, like a, it was kind of like a, like a group therapy session. And first of all, the first thing I did is thank them for their service. I know it's a big throwaway line now, but I realized that these guys got into this classroom from doing one thing and one thing only police work. And police work is a tough job. We're in the bad news delivery business. Nobody likes to be arrested. And with all the advances that we have made in technology, we're still putting people in handcuffs no differently than we did 100 years ago. Not much has changed. There are manacles. People fight. They resist. Now everybody has a cell phone. Everybody makes baseless accusations against the police. So how do we, how do we get cops to protect themselves, as Jack said before, from getting emotional? From getting their ego kicking in, their machismo, their macho, their 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 frustration. We talk, we listen, we communicate. We leave people better than we found them when we found them at their worst. We can't leave people better than we found them. That's idealistic. I'll leave that to the therapists who think that they they're going to come, you know, on some. Uh, I think the violence interrupters know how to do that, James. So I, I don't know. <laughs> I think what they should do is um, they should treat these civilian complaints now, especially since they're public and you can just go online and see how many an officer has. What they should do is they should treat civilian complaints almost like uh, the, w- the way they do fouls in basketball. You got two in the first half, you got to sit out now. We're going to pull you. And you pull them in, you, that's it. You got you to sit because you don't want these guys collecting so many within a certain amount of time. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't look good for anybody. Well, there has to be consequences. Just, you know, move them out. If, if they're working somewhere busy, pull the guy out that's doing the pool with the chlorine. Let him go out there for a little while. He'll get his two complaints, and they can switch back and forth. I agree. Like that all over. I yeah, but you know, there's a whole different philosophy now. We've had guys on this show that were some, like, most highly decorated cops on this job, like Mike Heinrichs. Mike Heinrichs has two combat crosses two medals of valor, and 212 department citations. A guy like that, they would take him off the road right now. You're not getting your second combat cross, guy. You're not getting your second medal of valor. And is that right? Think of the experience. Think of what the wisdom is that. I'm telling you, getting cops to open up in a classroom. and listen, I know plenty of talented instructors. I'm not. I didn't come out here tonight to put my my thumb in the eye of anybody who has anything to do with the administration or the maintenance of, of our membership. Okay, but um, when I think of just just the experience that I've seen with cops and how to, how they deal with people, I, so it was tough walking into a classroom. Now, my first couple of years of t- teaching, I have to admit, absolutely, it was, it, was, it was more of a monologue. I was following an old curriculum that my career path got interrupted with this curriculum called Verbal Judo. That was, that was a, uh, a, a private program that the job bought into. It was a commercially available product. The job loves that. They love bringing in these scholars and subject matter experts from all over the country to come into the NYPD. So they, they could offer a concept 
And our underwriters loved it because then they could check the box saying, you went to this train. And they loved it. The, the poindexters down at headquarters loved this stuff because now they're off the hook. Okay. So it was, I had to change my style away from lecturing or presenting and the showman in me or the vaudevillian in me or the theatrical in me. I was able to handle a three or four hour class, but I realized that wasn't the point, the point of training. So there was a point in my career where I had to get away from that formula and get the cops in on it and make it more interactive because I realized that the answers we're in those cops. All of us are better than any of us. So I used to open up my class because cops would come to training a little bit. I'm not talking about recruits. I'm talking about in-service personnel. And I'm not even talking about newly minted sergeants and lieutenants because they were in this, okay, this is what I got to do to get to the next rank. I'm talking about rank and file people, my people from my union years, not easy people to talk to. And I would open up by saying, give me one word, an adjective, a descriptive word that describes for us the type of people that you deal with on a daily basis. Now, that's a ground ball. And the first answer was like family feud. I heard assholes. I mean, that was the number one <laughs> national word. And I said, okay, got it. What else? And cops would feed me adjectives, angry people, hostile people obnoxious, belligerent, entitled. And then I'd kind of pick up from there because, you know, you know me a long time. You're not going to teach my class. <laughs> okay. I might give you a taste of interaction, but that was the brink of it. Then I would pick it up. Angry people, malevolent people, vicious people, vulgar people, frightened people, demented people, deranged people, shut down, worn out, distant, angry, hostile. And that's just your coworkers, okay? We haven't gotten into the public, the victims, witnesses, criminals, just dealing with cops, dealing with each other is enough of an ambition for this job. And I think that's where if I play this these next this next period of my life right, that's where I'm going to be moving into. The public is a tough customer. Wait, you said you're moving out of the nursing home? What are you, where are you going? Oh. <laughs> you're going to see me. You're getting to your van tonight. I'm going to be behind the wheel. I'm escaping. Uh, James and and uh, Jack, Dr. Stephen Washkel is in our live chat, and he made a oh, comment. Oh he's, the, he's great. He made a comment. He said, implicit bias should be enhanced, not suppressed, maybe called something else. But it's the cop's sixth sense that could be the difference between life and death. And it is. Yeah, this could be alive more times than I know. Just that sense. Yeah. I worked with cops, as I used to say in my class, who could talk a foaming at the mouth rabid dog off of a meat truck. <laughs> Conversely, I've worked with cops in my career who could show up to the scene of the blessed nativity. And put somebody's head open. So. Yeah, and escalate the situation, right? <laughs> There's always the guy you're like, oh no, he's here. Get him out of here. But, uh, the, the seventh car on the scene was the reason why we stayed there for an hour and a half. <laughs> but he's right. A shout out to the, to the good doctor and uh, a dear he's, friend. And thank you for what you do, doctor. He's a miracle worker. Oh my God! In fact, I use uh, the doctor's uh, uh, research that he allowed me to do that with his sighting on it about the the myths, the different myths of uh, of suicide, which people believe to be true, but in fact are not. 
and it, it's a whole list, and I go through each and every one of them. Beautiful. And uh, yeah, so nothing but again uh, respect for that man as well. So I love him. Hello, you know, the, he's, uh, we've had him on the show numerous times. I know you just mentioned uh, suicide, and this might be a little uncomfortable, but you asked me to pull up the photo of uh, yeah, uh, Lydia. Lydia. And uh, if you guys want to maybe talk a little bit about uh, Lydia right there. That was in, I think, Guantanamo Bay you went to, right? Yeah, so that was um, what you're looking at is a, is a ceiling tile in the officers' club, which we were you know, invited to go into. And uh, they, they made our our logo, um, our Talk To Me logo, onto a ceiling tile, and, they, and we signed it. The three of us signed it, and then they put it up there. So it's all for all to see whoever goes into the officers' club at, at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And very briefly, how that came about was uh, we had a negotiator at the time who was on active military duty, Kevin Hanley, detective uh, out of Staten Island at the time. And while he was there, there was a big uprising at the base. It was a coordinated, uh, you know, uh, organized attack on the base. Uh, a group of uh, compliant, they had three different sections of, of detainees. And the group of compliant detainees, where they lived in a, in a dormitory setting, set up a coup suicide where they pretended one, one of the uh, detainees was trying to hang herself. And when that was observed, three or four SRT members, their version of the SWAT team in the Navy, the Navy takes care of the detainees. When they go in there, it was it was a it was a big plan. They uh, they had soaked in the floor with, uh, with with soapy water, with urine, feces. Oh, and when they, when they came in, it was like the uh, the uh, roadrunner on an oil slick, and they all fell to the ground. They had the big fans there, and they broke off the three blades of the fan. And they started hacking at them with the blades, like a machete, if you will. So uh, very quickly, reinforcements got into the uh, dormitory setting, and they took it under control quickly. But the rest of the of the facility, Camp Delta, is what it was called. Um, they started rioting, you know, going out in riotous fashion, setting fires and destroying property. Enter Kevin Hanley. So he comes in. He starts negotiating with the head imam uh, through a translator, an Arabic translator. And almost as quickly as it began, it stopped. So the uh, commander at the time, a gentleman by the name of Harry B. Harris, who I believe now is the ambassador of Japan, U.S. ambassador to Japan. He was a four, a three-star admiral at the time. He went on to be a four-star admiral, and he was so impressed with Kevin, what Kevin had done. He said, "Kevin, I don't know how you did that, but more importantly, how do we get our people trained in what you just did?" So Kevin's, "Oh, the NYPD got to call this guy Cabrera," and he had one of his commanders call me up. So of course, I had to run by then police commissioner Ray Kelly, and um, he said, "Yeah, let's do it." Of course, Ray Kelly, as you recall, is a former Marine Corps colonel. So a big military guy. Hoorah! Yeah, there you go. Yes, indeed. And an ESU captain. And an That's ESU right. captain. Yeah. So they said to me at the time, well, and I said to them, actually, well, something I can't do myself. Uh, when I do a class, it's a whole, I have a whole training team with me. Well, you can't bring too many people, but how many would you like to bring? So Lydia was uh, was right there. And that's it. And James Shannon. So uh, we sat to James. James, are you... Will to go to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba? Absolutely. But the only problem is, if I can say it, James, uh, James didn't have a passport at the time. Oh, my God. But talk about the, who you know, right? So yeah. it was the chief, a chief in the counterterrorism calls up uh, someone he knows in the State Department. And that afternoon, yep. James had a passport, right, James? World traveler. <laughs> yeah. And then we went off and uh, we did a, a five-day hostage negotiation class 
which was a little foreign to the military. So this was the, the American Joint Task Force, which made up the five different branches of the military. So the negotiations, it's usually uh, something you don't hear in the same sentence when you use the term military. Right. And, and as Jim likes to say, we don't negotiate. We just drop by James. Yeah. Oh, we just make the dealer. Yeah, yeah. But I got to tell you, um, folks, that they, they embraced the training. And okay. uh, at the end of it, uh, we their final exam was a uh, five-minute speech in front, of the, in front of the class. And they could talk pretty much about anything they wanted to. If they had some incidents about hostage negotiations, preferably. And I'll talk about this picture in just a second, please. But um, one of the uh, one of the ensigns in the Navy gets up and he says about five years earlier, his brother, who had mental health issues, was behind the door and came from a very small rural town somewhere in the south. And the police came and they weren't really trained as negotiators and they were making jokes with him and never addressing his issues of, uh, you know, what is so bad that deserves a death sentence that you're, you're threatening. And they're making jokes, come on, buddy, let's go out and have a beer, you know, it's, a, it's bullshit, you know? And then. And Jack, that, that's a no no in hostage negotiation, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we uh, get into active listening and, and trying to understand why why are you there? What is why what is so bad? Uh, something called emotional labeling and active listening skills that we uh, train in as negotiators by trying to identify what the emotion is. That sounds pretty sad, pretty bad, huh? And what wow. makes you so sad? And we get him talking about it, is what it is. But he says he believed if the NYPD hostage negotiation team after that week of training was there at the other side of the door with his brother, that maybe, just maybe his brother might be alive today. Right. Now, Bill, can you go back to that picture real fast and just show uh, James? Yeah, absolutely. I just want to talk about that real quick. Hey, before you do that, let's give a shout out, Bill. We got a couple of uh, super chats here. Yeah, Dr. Stephen Washkel gave us 50 bucks. Thank you, Doc. Oh, Thanks, my Doc. Gosh. And we got Michael Marculli. Marculici. Marculici. He gave five bucks uh, in the super chat. So thank you very much. And Scotty you. Wagner also. Oh, oh Scotty Wagner. Oh, yes, Scotty. Scott was a, was a massive negotiator, Scott. Uh, I love Scott. I miss him. Scott's, so this, Scott's a frequent flyer here. Oh, my gosh. Oh, <laughs> Shout out to you, Scott. So this picture here, if I could just comment quickly. So um, what we try to do is, is replicate their environment uh, when we do uh, role-playing. And this particular, this is, in, you know, of course, in Guantanamo Bay. And James was uh, portraying a Lieutenant JG in the Navy who just got a dear John letter. Uh, I got a new boyfriend. Nice to know you. Have a great life. So uh, in the role, James starts drinking. He's got his uh, his uh, nine millimeter in his hand, and uh, he's threatening suicide. So there was one particular individual. He's in the picture. He's uh, leaning forward um, uh, with the short hair. Well, they all have short hair. But in any case, uh, he was a, a captain in the Navy, and he was head of the SRT team. And in civilian life, he was a Baltimore City SWAT team officer, police officer. So he was kind of, he had the mindset of being all SWAT. And every once in a while, always very respectful, no doubt. But every once in a while, he'd give out a little comment. Or maybe if you just get the SWAT team there, you know? Yeah. So I targeted this guy like early on, you know? So when we did this first role play, uh, I said to him, I said, uh, Captain, would you mind helping us out with the role play? So he wanted really nothing to do with it, but like all eyes are upon him, so, so he gets up. And when he starts negotiating with James, and the reason I'm telling the story, 
he was so compassionate and empathetic and asking the right type of questions. So he bought into the training as well that James had to respond to him in a positive way and finally opened that door to come on out. We, and we tell you this about James as a role player. He's a professional trainer. He's not going to give it up to you unless you earn it. Right. And, and, and the captain earned it. So I think uh, the captain walked away that day uh, maybe learning a little bit more about himself. That, again, just because you have that stick, yeah. doesn't mean you have to use it in every instance. No, yeah. absolutely not. 12-Step Woman, thank you so much for the nine ninety nine sticker. And Ryan Investigative Group, thank you for the $5 super sticker. You guys are keeping us in business. Thank you so much. For you guys that don't know uh, Jack Cambria, Jack Cambria is the was the guru of hostage negotiation in New York City for uh, lots of years. He picked up the ball. Uh, who was the your predecessor, Jack? So it was a uh, uh, Lieutenant Hugh McGowan, also a doctor. Uh, Doctor Hugh McGowan, he's a right? PhD yeah, in criminal justice. But no, I just want to tell everyone, you know, he's been on Blue Bloods, I think, like five times. So he's very much in demand, you know, and he's a pretty sexy guy. I'm sorry that Shanahan isn't as uh, sexy as uh, (laughs) as Cambria, but they work well together. Do I look good for my age? Do I look good for my age? You look great. (laughs) Now that you you got seven years old, okay, had a rough life. I found James uh, at a meeting uh, in. Dr. Maria Volpe's office in John Jay College, and that had to be uh, 2002. I took over the team in 2001, and I met James at a meeting, and I was so impressed with him that I, I latched on to him at that time, and I never let go. And I said, James, you have to help me. You have to be one of my trainers uh, for the hostage negotiation team. And he bought into that as well, and and we became compadres ever since, uh, the best of the best. So You know, Jack, I, I also taught at CIC, and I, I, my – Class was very, it was a lot of comedy involved. I'll put it that way. But when 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 they heard your credentials, they were like, "Oh, this guy's from homicide." It's yeah. like I didn't come from the, yeah. you know, changing the chlorine in the swimming pool, as James would say. You know, no. but he he used to come in and just listen for a while to to laugh. You know, I was like, "Who is that guy? He's one of my fans now." <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! In fact, a friend of mine was watching tonight. A shout out to Kevin Rafferty. I uh, was one of my partners in the 72 precinct. Uh, you know, we were doing that community policing program, and uh, he reached out to me this afternoon and said, uh, "All right, so we're going to be on." Uh, and uh, James Shanahan. So he remembers you. He was one of our negotiators as well. So he remembers you very well, James. We shout yeah, out. Run. Hey, James is a rock star in the uh, instructor business. He really is. You know, and Ray, Ray Kelly said that to him. Remember, James? Ray Kelly told you, You're, "This guy's a rock star." Yeah. Uh, hey, give me, give me first grade then. <laughs> Police officer Shanahan went to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Detective Shanahan came back. So I owe that to Jack and Lydia, who advocated for me, and of course, Commissioner Ray Kelly. That trip to Gitmo was more than just going down and helping out the military. It was really a life-affirming moment. And to be able to humanize that military operation in Gitmo very similar to what our cops deal with. We're in a thankless business. We deal with people that nobody can deal with, very challenging. It wears on you, it gets very personal. You know, we talk about you have this thick skin. The best thing about what what I learned from teaching, what Jack opened that door for, we call it Conflict management. I mentioned. I mentioned verbal judo. I can't without. I mean, it was a substantial moment. It was, that was like 
I put my foot in that and that helped me over the wall. But basically what we talked about was how to deal with people skills. I mean, uh, it's the, it's the thing that we do 98% of the time as cops is just dealing with people, meeting them where they are and bringing them to where we need them to be, leaving them to think they got the credit for it. So we have to teach ego deflation. We have to be ethical, meaning we have to be the right guys. And it's always the gateway is, is, is what? Empathy. It's ethics, empathy, ego deflation. And just to get back to Lydia Martinez, who this last month is the anniversary of 14 years, Lydia showed me how to teach. And she was, as far as I'm concerned, if I had a sister on this job, her name would have been Lydia Martinez. I mean, she was brilliant. And uh, a couple of times I caught Lydia talking about people behind their backs. And uh, the only difference was it was always positive, unlike me. Lydia always said wonderful <laughs> things about people behind their back. My motto is, if you want to know what people say about you behind your back, listen to how they talk about other people behind their backs. Right, right. You leave the room, they go in on you. Cops can be tough. Uh, cops can be rough to communicate with. There's this big facade. I'm guilty of it. But the idea is by humanizing the condition, by getting into active listening skills, engagement strategies, Getting people to get that now that you're here, everything is going to get a little bit better. That is the magic. That's the genie in the bottle. And as I said in my opening, or you said in my opening, I mean, 36 and a half years in the job. There's no way in the world I would have done 36 and a half years on this job had I not been connected to Jack and this curriculum and this mission to get cops a little bit better at what they're already good at. And when I hear people speak disparagingly about the police as a group, I mean, it just I, there's not enough high blood pressure medication in this house right now for me to use. And just getting the message out that cops need help at helping people. And one final thing I'll say is that, you know, we're taught almost instantly when we come on the job, don't take this job home with you. And that's pretty good advice. The training that we were able to do, the training that I aligned myself with and, and the, the teams of trainers that I worked with, and I learned from every one of them. It just made me better. This was the training that you could take home with you to make your own personal life, life with your family, your children, uh, your spouse, your ex-spouse, your, your parents, if you still. Everybody can get better at being around you once you do this. And that's the God's honor. That's not an exaggeration. And that's certainly not a punchline. That's no. Rochella Pranzo, thank you for the $5 Super Chat. Aaron Rodriguez, thank you for the 1999 Super Chat. You guys are really unbelievable to us. Thank you so much for the support. These guys really have uh, – and I don't, I, I don't think you mentioned that Lydia Martinez took her own life, and that was one of the reasons I think that you guys wanted to sort of uh, salute this show to her and dedicate this, this show to her because she was uh, – Tremendous human being. She was born on April 19th, 57, and she passed on February 27th, uh, 2007. That was Lydia Martinez. She was wonderful. Lydia had uh, no casual friends. If Lydia took you on as a friend, she was your friend. And Lydia was, Lydia was in my office three times a week saying, Jack, you got to put this person on the hostage negotiation team. And she 
give me application, give the individual an application, and she'd bring it back to me. And of course, if Lydia's name was on it, then it was a done deal. I, mean, I didn't even need to get interviewed. Uh, I did that just uh, formality purposes. But uh, yeah, Lydia was, uh, she, she cared about people, she understood people. And she taught me so much about, uh, you know, uh, about life, you know. And Lydia taught me, um, Jim and I were just talking about this uh, yesterday. Lydia gave me uh, an adage, and it's Buddhist in, in its philosophy. But she said to me, uh, whenever you have a problem with somebody, that you should look to embrace the difficult people of the world, because ultimately they become your greatest teachers, do they not? So get that and try to... Let them be your teacher by teaching you strategies of how to manage that that difficult person and making bringing them out to your side. Like James said earlier, leaving them in a better place than when you first found them. Yeah. Well, we kiss Lydia. Oh, I I think she was great. I mean, I I, I hit a couple of rough patches in my career. I, I had several of them. I mean, there was, was my life beforehand and uh, PBA and a few things, and then my training life. At one point, I said to Lydia, uh, what should I do? And, and she says, stick around. I mean, I had my 20 in. I could have went. I mean, we all have potential. There was a million and a half things I could have done with my life. I mean, the circus was calling me. And <laughs> <laughs> Lydia simply said to me, stick around. It's not going to get better, but you are. Oh, wow, that's a great thing. Because, you know, the job, the politics, the nonsense, the backbiting, the, the insanity. Yeah. That's everywhere. Leaving this job. <laughs> You're not getting away from that by leaving this job. And I'm grateful that I stayed. But so much of what I did when I stayed was came from my association with her and, and several other fine souls on this job. And they taught me how to teach cops, how to how to to be good the problem with a lot of this training is it gets a bad name because it's like people they they disparage it and they kind of condescend to it by thinking it's oh you're a boy scout i mean i, I can't really can't get my head around that that uh like unless you're a gritty kind of a rough kind of a raspy cop uh the cop that has that that grace is seen almost as a liability. And I completely disagree with that. I mean, perps respond very well to professional cops. And let me tell you, no, no perp is impressed with our uh, uh, characterization of uh, you know, movie roles that we play in playing gangsters and tough guys. They see right through it. So Lydia gave me a lot of help in, in in restoring my place on this job. You know, James, one of the things that, uh, and what you guys teach the de-escalation of force, it's uh, absolutely necessary and a great thing. But I don't like when like a good cop gets labeled a bad cop because he uses force and the force goes wrong. That doesn't make him, Pantaleo, for example, yeah. you know, Pantaleo had no intention of killing Eric Garner whatsoever. And Pantaleo was an excellent cop. He, I, he's the cop I wanted with me. Right. He, I wanted him in anti-crime. I wanted Pantaleo with me. But he was labeled by the media and everyone else. He's a bad cop. No, he was not a bad cop. He was put in a bad situation and maybe could have been handled a little bit differently. Maybe. But, 
you know, the, he was challenged. The guy, I'm not going today, guys. Do whatever you got to do, no, you know. No no stranger to this department, as we say. I mean, right, right. I, th- I believe he had 33 prior arrests. What bothers me is when the media or, or people who believe they can kind of superimpose their will and their life onto ours, they talk about, uh, you know, non-lethal alternatives. Take it from me firsthand. Everything has a potential for lethality, okay? Everything. There's no such thing as non-lethal. Less than lethal. Right, right. But nothing is non-lethal. Case in point, I had an ex-wife try to kill me with a pillow one night, okay? So it was <laughs> all lethal, not necessarily, but in her hands, absolutely they were. So I can <laughs> pass that on to my class, okay? Anecdotally. I but, but, you know, it, it's it's so hard uh, these days for these cops out there because, you know, as we all know, police work can get ugly and look ugly. And the use of force is never a, a, an attractive thing no. to look at, you know? Is not it's not pleasing to look at, and we're not here to police people, okay? We live in a culture now where everybody wants to be liked. I mean, it's almost epidemic about being liked. I tell my cops, people don't have to like you. They don't have to like you. They won't like you. You represent authority in a culture that's all about challenging authority. So inherently, you're in the bad news delivery business. People don't have to trust. People don't have to like you, but they have to trust. Have to. Right. That's the- so, uh, prior to um, May 25th, 2020. And that's the day that uh, Derek Chavant put his knee on George Floyd's neck. Correct. Prior to that date, society, the courts, even would tend to give you police officers the benefit of the doubt if it was if it was close. But from that point on, that changed policing for officers as officers once knew it forever. So no longer will they now get the benefit of the doubt from anyone. So they have to either accept that and change their approach to policing, of course, always being ever you know, vigilant of their safety first, and then uh, and, and just accept it. Because if they do not, they're going to have a very hard rest of their career, 20 years or 30 years, whatever it might be. And uh, yeah, now it might change at one point down the road. We've seen in the past, uh, just uh, in New York City alone, we've had uh, you know uh, the Eric Gardner protest. Speaking of Eric Gardner, we all remember those. We had the uh, Wall Street, uh, Occupy yeah, Wall Street, yeah. There you go, thank you, Bill, yeah. All that, and where police officers were getting assaulted on the Brooklyn Bridge or wherever they were able to do that. And then, uh, you know, time passed, and, and things got a little bit better, and then something else always comes along to yeah, of course. You know, bring it up again. So, But officers have to protect them, themselves. Uh, they have families that depend on them, and they can't rely on their emotional impulsivity, and they have to take a step back and think, is this the right response? Right. So whenever I think we make a decision, we must consider its beginning, its middle, and its ending. And once implemented, how will that decision impact on your life, the life of your family, and the reputation of your agents? So that's right. the little thought process into it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's sort of like what, what bothers me in it when it shows that it's a national uh, almost movement against the police is when the police are involved in a situation where deadly physical force is 100% authorized and they use it and kill the perp and then there's riots. 
Like, oh, what were they supposed to do? Take the lead and just not return fire, you know? And that's where I think people don't understand the whole theory of justification. They do not understand justification whatsoever, or nor do they want to understand it, you know? And you know, Bill, uh, a lot of the states already have done uh, done so, and I think New York State is looking to move towards it as well, is removing the uh, uh, implied uh, identification, the right. identification, yeah, immunity uh, from officers, uh, where they would be indemnified if they uh, acted within the scope of their employment. Right. But now you're seeing a lot of states, uh, you know, as part of this defund the police movement, is now being eliminated. And that's that's very scary for police Thank officers. You. Yeah. I could never have done my job. None of us could have done our job without knowing that as long as I did it right, it would be all right. The outcome could be wrong, but if I did it right, yeah. I was, I, how could I have impossible? Well, James, what you're referring to is your intent. And, you know, something, you can kill someone and be totally justified. It's your intent. What was your intent? You know, and justification comes into play there. But all, you know, that whole thing, I used to call it um, the four culpable mental states of mind, mm -hmm. reckless, intentional, criminally negligent, and knowingly. Right. And I used to teach that uh, when I was once a college professor. <laughs> <laughs> but people don't understand the law, so they have no idea, you know. It's just emotion. It's all emotion, pure emotion. And I, I use that in my class. I said, I'm, I'm going to use the F word. And the F word is, the F word is feelings. Okay. So it's all about how people feel. And yes. that is a big barrier towards people seeing rationality. So how they feel. It's, it's, it's difficult. No question. Very difficult. Duty Ron, thank you so much for that $10 super chat. He shouted out. He said, uh, Fantastic guest tonight, Lieutenant Jack Cambrian, Detective James Shannon. Thank you for your service on our job. You make us proud, along with all my retired brothers and sisters. And if you guys were Marines, I'd say, hoorah, but you're not. So, Laurie <laughs> no. Ortiz, today, today me and my partner would have been arrested for murder if the civilians weren't sitting on top of the perp causing his death. Uh, she posted that. I guess she's on the job. Something happened with her today? Oh, no, no. She's talking about... If it happened today, I think oh, she was formally okay. on the job. I think what she's re referring to is restraint, restraint asphyxia, uh, which okay. which can happen, you know. Uh, yeah. But but that's oh, one of, that's one of the reasons they in they uh, enacted the diaphragm law, which is a very very scary law, that really puts the cops in a lot of danger when making an arrest. Well, they didn't put anything in place of it. They just took that out. And then what are you left with? So there's this gap in, in tactics and methods. Yeah. It's like, you know, if, you, if you're a, a surgeon, the people that are going to um, change the rules to surgery are going to be other doctors. Right. But if you're a cop, the people that are going to change the rules of policing are going to be politicians who may or may not know anything whatsoever about policing. And they're so arrogant that they don't poll academics. They don't poll police, police executives. They don't poll attorneys. They just make these decisions on their own with no knowledge whatsoever. It's all about their base. It's all about getting votes. And, uh, hey, um, Bill, let me give a shout out to uh, Sandra Gabriella Rivera. She's a fan of the show. 
Uh, she listens to us. She does a nine-mile walk every day. Oh, wow. she's a, yeah, she's a cancer survivor. God bless her. Wow. Um, and she's lost over 100 pounds. There you go. And um, she says she listens to us every day. And I, I want—I told her I'd give her a shout out. And uh, I also said thank you. And I said I hope you'll never—I hope you never get a car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because then she won't listen to us anymore. Because <laughs> uh, she walks nine miles a day. Oh, okay, okay. But um, who knows where she's? Well, that's her exercise that she's doing. But she's uh, she's a big fan of the show, and she's getting through our library. And. Uh, I just want to, I promised her I'd, I'd give her name out. And, uh, and she also just gave us a fourteen ninety nine super chat, which is another oh, really? good, yes, yeah. Thank you, Sandra. Am I the only ones looking at that? You know. I see, I didn't see her name. I've seen I've seen her, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't see her name. Oh, okay. Now it just so happened that I mentioned her and she popped up. Thank you, Sandra. Thank Appreciate you so it. much. You know, so you guys, I mean, you have your work cut out for you. My prediction in 2021, once this whole virus thing, everyone gets uh, – vaccinated you guys are going to be busy as hell they're going to be calling you all across the nation okay and you know after this trial of officer chauvin in uh, minneapolis god knows what's going to happen and it's very sad because if if the if the mob doesn't get the verdict that they want they're going to burn this country down again and it's so disturbing because uh, you know they don't stop them from doing stuff like that you know they just let them vent you know and that's disturbing to me, you know. Yeah, I think you're right on that, though. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Let's, let's talk about the training because uh, okay, what is it? Uh, I, I, we all did. All four of us came from a rich, fundamental background in policing, and fundamental police training was lecture based. We know that we had a lot of talented trainers in the job, and it was lecture based training. And I credit. Uh, a, a frequent guest on your program as well, Bill, Chief Anamone. Oh, he's the best, man. He's the best. Chief Anamone, if this was acting, he gave me my start, okay? Chief Anamone, <laughs> Chief Anamone uh, was so tired of hearing cops that he was challenging them on why they did what they did, that their throwaway line was, well, that's what I learned at the police academy. And finally, he heard that, like, for the 99th time and, and just exploded. And wanted to change how cops were being trained. And I remember vividly, I remember this program, I believe it was 1994. Yeah, I was still in housing. The merger was in 95. So yeah, 94, they came out with top cops. It was really, really buffy. Okay. They, they pulled in street cops from all over the job and they were talking about uh, evidence and collaring and methods and techniques. It was really a hands-on kind of a, a judo school for police work where you got sweated up. And that transitioned into a thing called INTAC, in-service tactical training. And this was after the merge. And they brought in a, some of the top cops trainers, blended them in with police academy instructors. But the idea was it was about uh, they wanted cops that were in central booking just a few days before, not in, in, a, in a training administrative capacity that many years. And it was not lecture based training, but role play scenario training. And if you and I know anything about role play scenario training, the tendency in industrial role play scenario training, not just the NYPD, is a lot of times role play scenario training can be campy. 
It can be hammed up. It can be farcical. It could be the game of gotcha. So a lot of times, not only does training get a bad name, but role play scenario, cops are embarrassed. They're uh, self-conscious. They're made fun of. And here we are teaching how to deal with mental illness and disorders. And we're trying to demystify mental illness. So it was very, very important that we got the right people on board. And I was grateful. I was grateful that I got part of that. ESU and HNT, we mentioned uh, uh, Dr. Hugh McGowan, then the lieutenant in charge of HNT. They had this program up at John Jay exclusively. It was, again, top shelf blue ribbon training, ESU and HNT, where college professors who were licensed clinicians, psychologists, would feature the, the, the academic or the core clinical underpinning of the program. And they had police trainers who had that gift of gab and that ability. And then they hired professional actors. That was the missing ingredient. Professional actors, not just people that could you know, get up there and play at, but go into character, stay in character, and really hand in an authentic portrayal not just of a madman or a volatile, violent, vulgar character, but really deeply wounded human beings. And that's the training that worked. And that's the training I got my arms around. And I was, as an actor, it was, it was the greatest. And um, I was able to portray some seriously deep characters. And to have a guy like Jack Cambria coaching the students through we really found the magic formula. Everybody worked. All of us were better than any of us. And in my opinion, if there is a way forward for us, that's going to be it. It's going to be a real, uh, the nexus between credibility and creativity is going to be the answer. And a lot of it is anecdotal, but it's based on experience, not on theory and theory has a point or a place in it, but it's really about getting those cops up on their feet, working them through their range of emotion, getting comfortable, being uncomfortable, and it's in a safe environment. That's why I stuck around. And what we would teach, uh, James and I, were not only managing the EVP, the most disturbed individual on the other side of the door, but also the EVP on the outside of the door. So we all know what chaos means, right? Of course we do. Chaos. Chief has arrived on scene. Yeah, yeah. Chaos, right? And James, James would play the uh, a duty, started as a duty captain in full uniform, full regalia, and then it, he promoted himself to inspector. Of course. And, and uh, James, why don't you pick it up from this point? On a Friday afternoon. Uh, you know, can I just interrupt you for one second? Please. I think in James and I were talking about this uh, a, a, a couple of days or a week ago, we said it would be funny when you're in the academy and all these people would be going, the chief is five minutes away. The chief is in the building. We'd be like, are they kidding? Are yeah, they actually yeah. kidding? It's like, he's not Elvis. He's a oh chief. Gosh. Big deal, right? Oh, my gosh. Oh my and all gosh. the academy people were like, the chief is now in the building. <laughs> oh, my God. But uh, just to set James up, on, on a Friday afternoon after – we did our training. It was a two-week training curriculum, and that the the last Friday of the tenth day of, of training, these guys, said, all right, now we love HNT and uh, ESU, and yeah. let's get yeah. out of here. 
And all of a sudden, James, please. A few of them had a little, you know, had a little late lunch, if you know what I mean. A little had a liquid lunch. <laughs> you know, this is the job we came on, okay? Let's, uh, That's right. I would show up in, as Jackson's full uniform. I mean, I was doing, I was auditioning for at that exact time. I was auditioning for third watch. So it was really convenient that I had the uniform and all. <laughs> and I would show up like the bull in the trunk and I would eclipse the scenario. We have these hardworking ESU and or HNT up on a door and they had a door frame. You had what the actors behind the door playing out a floridly psychotic individual and these cops were getting some good good traction. At that exact moment, I would come in and attack whoever the boss was. And it was, it, I was the egomaniac with an inferiority complex. And I would just give the sergeant the time of his life in terms of batting him around emotionally. Do this, do that. I want those cars moved. Where are you? How come he's there? How come I would micromanage? and incinerate this poor supervisor and watch his team kind of a rodeo clown and getting <laughs> and the cops were up on the door and the, the ones that might have had an adult beverage with their cheeseburger they're stuck in their mouth with dentine you know <laughs> he's, a real, he's a real boss yeah, yeah. i came in with a radio and they're like one quick, uh, one quick anecdote. So James just mentioned, uh, you know, part of the routine was James was, hey, Sergeant, those cars, I want them to move right now. <laughs> well, I actually wrote that into the script because that actually happened to me. Yes, here we I, go. I was, oh, yeah. life. Here we go. <laughs> so I was a sergeant in ESU, and we had a, a warrant that was in Coney Island, and we were lined up in the door. So I'm, I'm heading up the team you know, as a supervisor. And I have, you know, eight officers with me. Uh, you know, we call it the stack, you know. And we're waiting for the word to go in. There's supposed to be a robbery that took place a couple of days before. Armed robbery with a gun. The guy's supposed to, the detectives track him down to this particular apartment. They get a search, uh, you know, search warrant, arrest warrant. And we're on the door waiting for the go, go ahead to go to the door. And as we're waiting, Chief Ali, the chief of the detectives at the time, mm -hmm. who I, I happen to like very much. Yeah, I liked Ali too. Yeah. He comes over to me and goes, hey, Sarge. Get all your ESU trucks in front of the building. Have them move right now. So I'm looking at him. Is he serious? Because <clears throat> I'm not going to say this to Chief Ali, right? So I give him a high ball. And whatever you say, Chief, I have to take somebody off the stack to go gather up all the keys from all the ESU offices, move all the vehicles, the REPs we call them, and uh, took 15 minutes, maybe more. And finally he comes back. He gets back in line. He's got his gun back in his hand. And finally, we get to go ahead to go through the door. We pound the door. We go in. We get our bad guy. One in custody. Bring him out. Chief Ali now comes over to us. and goes, hey, Sarge, tell you guys they did a good job. I said, Chief, <laughs> thank you very much. And I couldn't resist. And so, oh, by the way, Chief, as he starts to walk away, I said, I was sure to get those REPs for you. And he stops and they try. <laughs> he looks at me and he says, Sarge. That was for you. In case I had to get an ambulance in here, one of your guys got hurt. Yeah. Uh, talk about taking the wind out of my sail real fast. It's not. Absolutely. You know, I loved I loved using the authority of a chief to order a unit to do something. And I remember he told me, he goes, have Harbor come by the Willis Avenue Bridge, have them 
dive right there and search for a knife. Right? So it was a double murder. So I call Harbor. They're like, they're cursing at me. I said, oh, by the way, that's authority of Chief Ali, the chief of detectives. You can hear them. They were so pissed, you know. Oh, yeah, they did it. They did it. They didn't want to do it, but they were pissed, man. But he was great. He was great. He was a tough guy, but he was—he was, he was a good guy. I like that. Hey, why don't we uh, read the commercial, man? We didn't do it yet. You got to read it. I don't know. What, I know it's hot. I know it's hot sauce, but I—I I forgot to put the the. Uh... Okay, so just everybody, so we know uh, this. Pretend like we're doing the commercial break. Uh, we are sponsored by the best hot sauce in the world. It's called Silk City Hot Sauce, Lieutenant. And uh, you can find it at SilkCityHotSauce.com. It's all made with all natural ingredients and locally grown peppers. Um, they have a lot of fancy flavors. The artwork's incredible. And if you want to get some and get a 15% discount on it, you go to Silk City Hot Sauce and put in uh, OTC, where it says coupon code, OTC. You'll get a 15% discount. Trust me, you'll like it. If you like hot sauce, you're going to be in love. All right, back to the show. I am there. Okay. How is that? How is that as a poster to uh, Shanahan? Looks like he's—I uh, don't know—he's he, doing a, an exorcism or something. I'm not sure. It's <laughs> <laughs> with my hands. Not bad for an Irishman. No, that's that's good. That's uh, you got to you got to emote. You got to show the emotion. You know. That's funny. That is funny. You got time for one of my? I don't call them warriors. I don't call them war stories. I call All them. Right, give us one to close it out. Give us. Yeah, a this is this is actually we're at an hour and up hour and twelve. Give you one more war story. Web Webster houses up on the door. Woman barricaded EDP. Found her son's stash of of drugs. Got his gun in her hand. She's behind the door. She's throwing flammable liquids around, threatening to set the apartment on fire. Her she's drunk. Her boyfriend is up on the door he's drunk the two of them back and forth every time we put the boyfriend up on the door as a third party intermediary which may be a questionable tactic she calms down the minute we pull him off the door she accelerates and this was frustrating we had the we had, we had esu stacked up and it's very frustrating we put a vest on her boyfriend and a young cop on the stack, a young Spanish cop. We only say Spanish because it was uh, Hispanic. He's looking at me, and he's waving to me. And I, rec I, I realize he recognizes me from training. Okay, fine. I am the Freddie Mercury of police training. <laughs> I love that. And, and so he calls me over, and he says, you're Shanahan. You do the training. I go, yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Let's, let's he says, I can imitate this guy you have on the door. He sounds just like my uncle. I know exactly where in Puerto Rico he's from. I could imitate him. Check in with the incident commander. That's what Jack taught me. The incident commander is in charge. We get this young cop up on the door, and he is swearing and professing his love to this woman in pitch perfect cadence and voice sounds exactly like the boyfriend. Sure enough, de-escalates her completely. Now we have to figure, let's get the boyfriend back up on the door because she's gonna surrender. They take the ballistic protection off the door, the door opens up and we were united. Why? 
the creativity that cops have, that ability for cops on the fly, that was a tricky, dangerous, high-risk situation, but because this cop was able to figure out how to figure it out, this story, cops are brilliant, and I love cops, and I even love people who don't like cops, because I think if we do good police work long enough, more people are going to come around to seeing that a lot of the myths and disparaging comments about policing is really, it's not, it's not as you think it is. Well, what's that expression, the emptiest drum makes the loudest noise? Is that the no, expression? empty tin can makes the most noise. Oh, drum yeah. too. No, uh, get, a, get an empty barrel like they used to make the fires on. Uh, I learned it from the nuns in, in Catholic school. Empty tin can. They and always say that the empty can makes the most noise. And that's true, you know, because there's a lot of people that do like cops. There's a lot of people that support yeah. us, but they don't get heard. We hear the, you know, as they say, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? There you go. Hey, uh, before we uh, tune out, I just uh, I just want to say uh, to Lieutenant that when I used to go up to uh, 1PP, I always looked forward to going to your office. You could, I don't know why. I just have a radar for special people. You used to speak at our our homicide course, and I used to coordinate it. I was, I remember that, yes. Yeah, and um, it was always a great, great lecture. People always looked forward to hearing you speak. But it was even more than that. I don't know why. I just, I, I just gravitate towards um, to to you, and and I wanted to say hello all the time. And and James Shanahan as well. We met during the training. And uh, I always gravitate to special people. The only person I ever messed up with was Bill, but. Um, <laughs> but James, you pulled me into, uh, you mentioned the CIT training that was, we did it. I was there for, uh, five years or better. And, uh, it was probably the, you know, I've been acting since I was 26 years old. So for 25 years. Okay. And, uh, you know, I had a chance to work out every single week, a couple of times there and I did different characters and it was more fun. And I always said this one thing I'd say, I don't care what movie set I'm on. Uh, it's going to be in my contract that on Thursdays I got to be at the academy doing Suicide Cop, <laughs> you know. And you did a beautiful job. You're a lot of so many people. I, I owe so much to so many people who who took that responsibility and, and brought that. It was such a, so much fun. That was, that was so much. I loved it, man. I never. I was getting paid good money, and I, I'll tell you, man. I I never want to say I would have did it for free because I wouldn't have, but. You know, <laughs> Hey, you got to make a living, right? Bill, what do you got? No, you know something. Again, I, I, I get so repetitive when I say this every show. But one of the greatest uh, experiences of doing this show is the great people we get to meet and the great people we get to have on the show. And I met great cops while I was working, great detectives, great bosses. And uh, it's good to meet some people from other parts of the city and stuff, too. You know, I was a Manhattan North guy my whole career, you know, and I'm meeting guys from Brooklyn. I'm meeting guys from all over, people messaging us, asking to come on the show. And uh, the people we've had on the show, we, we should – if I could fit behind me a Hall of Fame of all the great people we've had on the show, let me tell you something. You would – be privileged to be in the company of the people that have been yeah. on this show. Yeah. You know? That's sure. amazing yeah, it, it, it's unbelievable. You're doing great work. Both well, you. you know, something, we hope that um, our show helps cops that are on the job right now. Yeah. See, realizing that there's hope and that, you know, it, it always comes full circle. Yeah. And this is still a good job. Hopefully, 
the leaders of this job will back the cops more than they do now. I can just be a little critical with that now. I think they take it on the chin too much from these politicians. I can't imagine Anna Moen sitting among the city council now and taking some of the shit that the bosses on this job take now. Anna Moen would de- definitely hit them with a few expletive deletives, you know? Yeah, before we go, Sandra Rivera, is there um, going to be a link where we can start the process to book some of these training here in Charlotte because he is literally right up the street? So, um, Sandra, she's in Charlotte too. You might see her walking around on her nine mile walk. But uh, she wants to know about training. So uh, can you tell us to the website or someplace? Oh, okay. oh, thank you. I, 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 that almost went over my head. I call my company Kesatsu Dojo. The word Kesatsu in Japanese, you can see another bit of an inspection auto. Uh, Kesatsu means police. It's spelled K-E-I-S-A-T-S-U, Dojo, D-O-J-O. The word kesatsu dojo dojo is generally a school or a place of the way and a richer deeper meaning for the word kasatsu in addition to police J- james could you spell it slowly i'm going to put it in the chat k-e-i okay s-a-t s-u d-o-j-o dot com kesatsu dojo dot com yeah common spelling james that's why, yeah. Um, <laughs> I just put it in the chat, so they'll have it. About, the good thing about Japanese is it's it's pronounced exactly as it's spelled. So it's mm-hmm. a, I speak Japanese. As you know. <laughs> no, that's pretty cool, man. That's but pretty cool. You can understand me. That's the. <laughs> and well, gentlemen, I'm available. Jack, and myself, I we put together a nice uh, collection of artisans and clinicians, and uh, we carry a strong message, and our message is one of hope. So. Thank you for letting me come out here. And, uh, you guys are going to be very busy shortly. As soon as this virus is, we reach herd immunity, you guys are going to be all over the damn country. I can oh, guarantee oh, that. You know, You know, I go through my phone. I see a lot of names of a lot of great people that I've had the joy of knowing. So my, my plan, my dream is to put training uh, t- together and make the uh, – the concert for Bangladesh and Live Aid look like a <laughs> okay. So uh, a lot of talent uh, out here. So uh, that's great. Folks that's are going to be getting a phone call from Old Shani. Okay, and, and and folks out there, if uh, if you like this show, please uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. Just uh, hit the subscribe button on YouTube, and also we have a Patreon. We have three tiers for seven dollars a month. Uh, what is $7 a month again? You're the bucket. $9 a month. Uh, you can polish my rack. And for $11 a month, you can dip any body part you want in butter. All right? And you get to get all of our material on our, on our uh, Patreon. And it's www.patreon.com slash police off the cuff. You won't be sorry. <laughs> you know what? I got this thing. Um, I got a patch uh, and, a, and I think a, um, a coin. I still haven't opened the pack from Terry. He's from uh, Tennessee, I think. We'll talk more about him uh, on, a, on the next show. I didn't open it up, that's why. But I just wanted to say thank you. I received it today if you're out there, Terry. And uh, we'll be sending you a mug. I promised him a mug because uh, that's what we do here. And we're going to start out with some more. Uh, we're going to get some more merch, some shirts, some hats. And we're gonna you get- notice we made the mistake with our merchandise of having to mail it ourselves. Oh, my God. <laughs> what a pain in the ass that is. 
we're going to try to get someone that will handle everything, you know? So uh, when we get Sergeant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, gentlemen. I really you guys, you guys are the best. And just promise us one thing: you'll come back. Oh, yes. Because I you know you're going to travel the world, and you're going to come back with more stories, more jokes, more funny. You know. Yeah. If you want to pitch anything, you know, you uh, plug something. You got to the, the whatever, whatever it is. You're always welcome on the show. I'd like to take both of you with us when we go out on the road. Hey, <laughs> yeah. Bill and I are going to take our show on the road. We're in the middle of uh, writing a something that we can go do lectures on. Oh, you know what I'm saying? I'm trying to convince Bill. Oh, he was close <laughs> on you. that. Yeah. But, you know, he's up there in the palatial estates. He's got the pool in the summer. Yeah. He, uh, he goes skiing <laughs> up there. He doesn't want to leave his house. Oh, my God. I, I feel like I haven't left my house for a year during this whole COVID thing, you know? I got my first shot. I get my second one on the 20th, and then I'll feel a little more, um, you know, confident to go around the world a little bit, you know? I'm going to get my shot. I'm just waiting. To, I'm waiting till Bill gets his second shot, and, and I'm going to give if him a shot. If he's still alive, I'm going to go. Yeah. <laughs> so, All right, guys, guys. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you so much. And to I all my fans you. watching, good night. Good night, everyone. Thank you very much. Good night.